welcome to The No Podcast with me, Nikki Spo. Hi, Evelyn. Thank you so much for having me, Nikki. I'm so glad to be here. This episode will be broken up into three distinct parts. We're going to talk about child therapy, the role of the parent, and then we're going to talk about your infertility journey and trying to conceive. You are a licensed mental health counselor with um, a focus on child therapy, and you are also a parenting coach. As a mom of two young children, I am very interested in these topics, and I feel like this conversation has the potential to help and encourage a lot of our listeners, a lot of the moms, especially moms of young kids. Everything about the No podcast comes back to women discovering their inner knowing, the feeling of knowing yourself, your desires, your power, and how to maximize your life with that sense of knowing. Let's start with the beginning of your journey as a child therapist. How did you decide that you wanted to become a child therapist? I've always had a really big interest in just the human mind and human behavior. This is like what we do in this earth. And I found it fascinating just to understand how people could walk around being so different, yet we all have like commonalities, right? So I was interested in everyone's story and there's so much psychology. Children come into this world so pure and so authentic. Then I really wanted to start at the very beginning. I thought I could be a strong agent of change and really make an impact with children, you know, even really, really young children. I completely agree, you know, and there's so much of my own personal healing that I found I had to go back into my childhood to, to heal those childhood wounds and just systems that were put in place. But why early childhood? Look at childhood as a whole and like what? We can really look at it from birth until 18 years old when you have your adolescence. What age range do you specialize and why is it crucial to work with that age range in specific? First, when I was working with children, I was working with all ages. So I'd work with even up to teenagers, even adults. And I found myself gravitating towards younger and younger and younger. And then that sort of piqued an interest in something. There was like something that came up that was called infant mental health. And I got trained in that. And I left that training just mind blown by how much happens in the first five years of life. So when you ask me what what ages do I really kind of tend to gear towards, it's really the first five years. What motivated me or what I found so, so astounding was the amount of brain development that happens in those first five years. It's just a crazy statistic. So the statistic is that by the time a child turns five, 90% of their brain is developed, which I feel like I say that and like everybody gasps with like anxiety or awe or lots of things, you know? So I was like, yep, I got to get in there. What's happening in those first five years? I also found this research, which I found so amazing. And it talks a lot about the unconscious. This research states that like they were looking into the brain and they found that the unconscious is really built in the first seven years. Like this is sort of when it's set. And as adults, we actually walk around 95% of the time, we actually operate from like those first seven years. That is our unconscious. I want to kind of go back to what you said. You had to go back to your childhood as you're doing your inner work, your healing, right? We walk around with patterns and like notions and beliefs and core beliefs that were set in those first seven years. So I was like, wow, let me get in there while all of this is happening. All of this is developing. That is where you can be a really big agent of change. 
I'm I'm like taking a moment right now because I'm still thinking about the fact that like I when I walk around and almost all of the things that I do right in my everyday life and the way that I think about the world, everything that that I come into contact with has to do with the thought processes that I grew up having, right? Like the patterns yes. that were instilled in me from a really early age. Um, yeah, I'm listening to you and I'm hearing like, oh my gosh, like well, who's in charge of instilling these <laughs> patterns, right? And I'm like, oh boy, like that, that's just, it's, it's, it like makes me think about my own upbringing, but it also think, makes me realize like the huge responsibility, the larger than life responsibility that us parents have um, in raising our children and, and setting them up for success in the future. We'll, we're going to get into all of that. But before we get into the role of the parent, I, I also want to talk about the fact that like being a therapist for children is a heavy, heavy work, or it can be really, really heavy. I was not a therapist, but when I started working as a teacher in the inner city school, I saw a lot of the adversity that these kids were facing. It was such a beautiful experience to be able to work with them. They were they were middle school students, which is also a really tough age. I think you you know and very you know, vulnerable, oh such God. a vulnerable age. It's like a yeah. fork in the road, right? Like middle school is like the fork in the road of them like stepping into their identities and discovering who they are and going through puberty and everything. And so it was, it was really hard for me as a teacher, especially in my first year. Um, I grew up in a middle working class family. I went to a public high school here in Miami, public, public school, my whole upbringing. The fact that they didn't come to school having had breakfast and they like on the weekends, like they really relied on that, that lunch that they were having at school as their caloric intake. Just having them open up to, to me as, as their teacher, you know, and just getting little snippets of their lives. It was really heavy work. And I would come home just completely overwhelmed emotionally by carrying their burdens, you know, and also feeling very powerless over wh what I could do to make a difference that I could only make a difference while I was in the classroom with them. So how do you compartmentalize and what is your method? I get exactly where you're coming from. I'm thinking of when I first was doing my, my internship after I graduated my master's, I worked in community mental health and I saw everything. And honestly, I walked in there saying, like, like giving them my requirements. I'm like, I don't want to see adults. I don't want to see like really heavy duty stuff. Like I gave them this whole list of like, you know, give me the, the, the easiest, like most nonchalant clients. And that's obviously not what I got. They threw me into, into really heavy work. And I think that was so eye-opening for me to a fault. I grew up sheltered. It was such a bubble that I realized this was totally not the real world and it didn't prepare me for the real world, right? So like one skill I did not have growing up was resilience, which a lot of the the people that probably are the kids that you saw in the middle school, they're full of resilience. So I was thrown into this, into this community mental health therapy world. And I remember that first week, like coming home and I was just like crying and, and calling my mom and being like, these stories, when you think you've heard it all, like there's always more. For a moment, I was like, I don't know if I can do this. And I'm also such a sensitive soul that I would really, I'm an empath. I would really feel. I was going to ask you if you're an yeah. empath because I get that from you. Total empath. And it's like, you know, the pros and cons of being an empath, right? So it's great, but it's also extremely overwhelming and draining in a lot of ways too. Um, but I had to learn. It was such an effort for me because it's not natural for me to be able to kind of leave something at work. Honestly, it was time, I think, just time and also understanding that I can't be the helper of like what you were talking about. It's not just, you know, seeing the kids in school. It's a systemic problem. And this is a lot of what I saw was a systemic problem. It's an economic problem. It's a parental problem. It's it's a funding problem. There's so many issues and you can't 
take care of it all. And I think just sort of coming to an acceptance with my role is good enough as the person in the room supporting this person for, for that hour. Coming to an acceptance of that was, was a way for me to say, that's okay, that's where I can give them my all. And then I can come home and I have to take care of myself. For me, my sanity is in my workouts. It's been that way for years. You know, um, the compartmentalization and like the taking care of yourself is so important. I remember um, seeing a therapist while I was a teacher as well. Um, and she would tell me that you can't save everyone, but you can show up every day and and do your best to make an un- impact and a lasting impression on them. And it really made me think, like even just listening to what you were saying, it's like all of these adults in the room play a crucial role in a child's development. I even hear like when I, I still see some kids in private practice, but mostly parents, but I've even heard from some of the kids I see, or I've seen in the past, um, that their person that helped change their self-esteem or help motivate them was a teacher or a coach or a therapist. It was not necessarily their like home base, their family, right. Or not necessarily their community in a certain way. It could, so you never know just how big of an impact you can have on somebody. A caregiver that is really present with a child is so much more powerful than people think. So when we first met, um, I, I feel like we in, immediately bonded over um, our love for Dr. Shafali Sabari, um, who wrote The Conscious Parent and her her work and all of her teachings. Um, and it's so it's crazy how small the world is, is that we were actually both at her lecture at the University of Miami back in 2012 before the pandemic lockdown. <laughs> and we both, it's so funny, we both have our proud photo with her, like line to like get our picture with her because, I mean, it was such a great thing. And her teachings are so powerful, just so powerful. Um, I've gotten that book for like both sets of grandparents of, for our kids. And yeah. I, I first learned of her on Oprah's uh, Super Soul podcast. Um, and I went on to read her book, The Conscious Parent. And then I think, what's the other one? The the Awakened Family. Now she has a new one that I want to read. It's called The Radical Awakening or something. I'm such a, she, a girl crush. I'm definitely a fangirl of hers. That book was mind-blowing for me. Um, I felt like everything clicked for me um, when I was reading that. And so many feelings that I could not put into words finally made sense to me. And that's not to say that I became a perfect parent. Far from it. But it really got me thinking about how we parent and why our kids trigger us so much. And for what it's worth, yeah. it helped me put my ego aside, which was really difficult, but it helped me put my ego aside and have the willing to, the willingness to look at myself and get better. And ultimately when I started to adopt this practice, it started to heal my, me. Like I was it's incredible healing. Yeah. Why is coaching parents paramount to your success as a child therapist, but also why is the, how are the parents' roles crucial to the children and ultimately the entire family's success? Yeah, there is something just so incredible about starting to parent in a really conscious way uh, will heal anything that was sort of missing in the way that you were parented. You talk about all these triggers and all these things, and this is just like the way that Shefali, um, she she definitely changed my entire path of my work and my career. I owe, I feel like I owe it all to her. I'm working with kids. I'm working with kids. I'm, I'm still a little frustrated working with kids because I'm not really seeing these like big ginormous impacts all the time. And I'm like, 
This is not enough. So what I started to realize as I worked with kids, but also as I dove deeper into like infant mental health and also, you know, read things like from Shafali and, and other people that were similar was that the kids is the kids are actually not the root. So what I thought in the beginning is let me start at the root. Let me start when they're little. And kids are actually not the root. It's actually the parents. The parents are the root. And there's this theory, attachment theory, I don't know if you've heard of it or not, which is different from attachment parenting. I think that people confuse them sometimes, but the theory, which has been like over, like researched over and over and each time consistent findings is all about the parent-child relationship. And this parent-child relationship develops as soon as, you know, actually sometimes some researchers will say even in utero it starts, but the first year of life, even it, it becomes the quality of it becomes known as like a secure relationship or an insecure relationship. And these first five years as this child's developing this brain so rapidly, the relationship between the child and their caregiver or plural caregivers is so impactful in the way their brain is going to develop. Let's kind of talk about practically what this means. A child will understand their worth, if they're worthy or not worthy, if they're lovable or not lovable. They will understand how other people are. Can I trust others? Can I not? Am I, am I kind of self-relying here or, you know, are people good? And they will understand sort of how is the world? Is the world a predictable and safe place for me to go and explore and try things and take risks? Or is the world a really scary place that's out to get me and I need to sort of cocoon in my little place? And so all of these, like these become your core beliefs as a human. And all of these are really, really built in those first few years, mainly from the way that you're treated by the adults around you. So it's just so incredibly powerful. So I said at this point, I need to work with parents. This is who I need to work with because they are having this, this big of an impact on their kids. Absolutely. It's amazing, right? It's also very scary. Like that reality, like when you're laying it out there, I'm like, oh my gosh. It's like, and it's overwhelming. Me as a mother, I'm like, oh my gosh, every, like everything that I say to my kids right now, matters. Everything that they hear matters. So no, you do not have to be perfect. Not every single thing you do or say to your child will be ingrained in their brain. I want a big relief upon all the listeners right now because there is a really big margin of error. There's a lot of room for mistakes, a lot. And what we're really, what we're really looking for is like this overall pattern. What happens more often than not? Does your child feel safe with you emotionally? Does your child feel like they can totally be themselves and you are going to love them unconditionally? Or do they feel like they can only show certain feelings? They can only show up and be, you know, happy-go-lucky or, you know, shut down all that discomfort or disappointment. How do you welcome all of these really uncomfortable things that children go through. And if you sort of learn to hold space for this, because this is really important, this goes into like how we actually build our emotional intelligence, our emotion regulation. All of this starts from the beginning. Is there space for our emotions in our home? That's really, really huge. We as adults are walking around with these habits that were ingrained in us as children. So we are learning 
how to fight for our emotional, like to be seen emotionally and heard emotionally and have, have safety in our own homes. You know, when you have partners who or you have a spouse or you have people living with you or you're living with another adult, like it is hard work. That is hard. Yeah. And you're, and you're absolutely right. A lot of times you will see this actually like play out in intimate relationships, right? You, the same sort of patterns that you had as a child will play out. You're, you're seeking the same things or you behave the same way. So you have people that are super shut down emotionally in relationships and guarded, and you have people that like are very open and expressing themselves. A lot of times that's a reflection of how they grew up and how, how much space there was for, for those big emotions in, in their childhood. I want to bring up a personal example that I, I actually posted about and a lot of people um, reached out to me about it. But I, I remember I was alone with my kids for an extended period of time and um, I was so overwhelmed and I ordered junk food for them for dinner and it, we ordered tacos. And yeah. my sons proceeded to like frisbee the tacos, like frisbee food fight tacos. And they thought it was hilarious. You know, my son was two, my older son was two and a half. And my, my younger son is like, was like maybe 12 months, like a, a year old. Yeah. And they, this is the fun, like the most fun they had had. And I lost it on like, I'm like, stop throwing the tacos, right? And then I like <laughs> removed myself and I came back and I apologized to my sons. And I was like, listen, I'm very sorry. Mommy's sorry. I'm sorry. I take responsibility. I don't like to speak to you that way. If I'm overwhelmed, I'm going to step out and calm myself down before I re-enter. But I am sorry for this and I hope we can work through it. I am huge on apologies. So this is what you did. It was called a repair. And so this is actually, uh, when we talk about margin of error and we make mistakes, we all lose it on our kids. I have a five and a half year old. I lose it on her a lot. And so what I also do a lot is repair and repair is exactly what you did. It's like being able to kind of step outside of ourselves and kind of assess, did that really feel good for any of us? And most of the times the parent, like instead of sitting with this guilt and just sitting and sitting with this guilt and being like, I'm a terrible mother, I'm a terrible father. Really, you have such an opportunity to create something out of this. And what you did to go back to your children, it doesn't matter how young they are, which I love that you did that, even though they were just a toddler and an infant going into toddlerhood, right? It, it doesn't matter. It's this whole sort of body language you're giving them of like, you know, I'm going to mess up sometimes. I don't like the way that went and I'm really sorry. And I don't want to treat you this way. And that's such a powerful message for your child to get from you. You're doing two things at the same time. One, you're repairing your connection, which is again, the most important thing in the world to a child is their connection with their parent. So they now see, okay, my mommy that I know and love is back. This is the mommy I know and love, right? Like she's back. And that was a moment in time, but now she's here and she's back and I feel safe again. Right? So that's a really big way of, of going back to connecting. And the other thing you're doing, which I love is you're, you're modeling for them that we should take accountability for our actions. I have a lot of parents I work with that fear apologizing because they fear this means they lose authority. And I completely disagree. I think that, you know, the the best way that children learn is through modeling, is through really observing the actions of the people around them. And you are, as a parent, such a strong figure for them. So what you model really gets internalized into your child. So why not model these things of accountability and, you know, empathy and compassion? And that's what you're doing by coming in and reconnecting 
and repairing and apologizing. So that was, that was amazing. Thank you. That actually, that means a lot um, coming from you. Um, <laughs> I remember like that night I, I cried about it and it going back to what you're saying is like, I, I called a girlfriend and I was like in tears about it. And she told me, she said, you know what your kids are going to remember more is all those dance parties that you have with them. Yeah. Like, I was really upset about it that night, but I, I tried to think about it that way. The overall feel yes. of the home and the energy between the parents and the child, right? Like, so you are allowed to have the, the, the mistakes here and there, but you're looking for the overall feeling. And that's my takeaway from what you're saying in regards to this topic that I think is really, really important for our listeners to understand. A hundred percent. And you know what, I'm going to just, there's this quote out there and I don't remember exactly like who said it or how it goes, but it's something to the extent of like, your kids are not going to remember what you bought them or everything you said to them, what they are going to remember as they grow up and remember their childhood is how they felt around you. That's what they're going to remember. This is so applicable and true in regards to parenting. Let's talk about the authority versus boundaries. Really, we need to be setting healthy boundaries, right? When people hear that my approach is really more of like, I guess it's a combination of like conscious parenting, positive parenting, like just, I I don't even want to label it. What I do is I just, it's connection-based. That's what it is. I'm all for teaching skills to my child. It's all skill building. And when I think about what do I, what do I want when I parent, I want her to learn lifelong skills. Something that people confuse a lot is that we have to teach children things by shaming them or punishing them or sending them to timeout to think about what they did. They're not learning this way. So, but this doesn't mean that I don't believe in boundaries. Boundaries are so necessary and so healthy in a home. Boundaries equal safety. Like, you know, when there's a boundary, like, even if you think about it, I, I always do this little exercise with parents where I'm like, imagine you were on the top of a skyscraper and you were on the roof and there's no railing around it. And it's a windy day. Like, where are you going to be standing? You're going to be standing in the center and you're not going to move. Right? This is where the only place you feel semi safe. But now if I say, okay, there's this big sturdy railing all around the perimeter, this changes the experience for you completely. You're like, okay, I know I'm safe. I know I'm not going to fall off. And it allows you to explore a lot more than without having boundary. That is the representation of boundaries in, in a child's life. It, it gives them this perimeter where they can still explore because you don't want them to not explore. Exploring is, is, the way that they develop and grow, right? The way they, they gain skills like autonomy and resilience and all of that. It's through exploring and through failing. But when they know there's these sturdy boundaries, and this is why I really believe in consistency when we parent, when we parent, because yeah. when boundaries aren't consistent, that means they're not sturdy, right? They're there sometimes, oh. not there other times. So when we parent consistently, these sturdy boundaries provide a safety net for them. Physically and emotionally, everything. That is the best analogy that I've ever heard. I did read it in a book. Okay. <laughs> if you're in a, a two-parent home, right? Yes. You have to be on the same page with your with your partner, too, yes. about these things. And that's hard work, too. You know, so these, these examples and these analogies are so important. And, you know, I know so many moms who carry the mental load of their families, right? Yes. I And I'll speak for myself. I read the parenting books and I provide the spark notes, you know, to, to my spouse. That's usually how it is. (laughs) These are the key points. How do you feel about them? Can we, are we on the same page about this moving forward so we can parent 
um, as a team, you know, but, but it's so often that, that moms are the ones doing all like this time consuming research. Yeah. Um, and that's hard, but that analogy, I'm going to take that with me and yes. going to share that because it is so, such a really good visual of, of how boundaries are important. Doing this kind of parenting does not mean you don't, you don't hold authority. It doesn't mean you don't have boundaries. You just understand what your role as a parent is and what your job. And it really is to hold those boundaries and keep your child safe and healthy. But you also understand the job of a child, which is to push boundaries and to explore and have big feelings and all of this. This is really their job. And lots of times I think that's where parents get frustrated. They're like, you want, they want to set the boundary and then they want the child to like the boundary. They're like, now you have to like that you don't get to eat ice cream. <laughs> right. There is freedom in the boundary. Like this is, this is the limit, but within these limits, you have freedom of choice. Yes. So that becomes so, such a healthier way of parenting because kids like, and if you think about just how, how heavy of the stuff that's going on for them in, the, in terms of development, you want them to feel powerful. You don't want their power to go away. And I think a lot of times being threatened that you, you're not going to have leadership and authority, we end up stripping away the power of kids all the time. And it's not necessary when just exactly what you're saying, like you, you can still give them power and choice. I literally had this, this discussion with, with my older son, Santiago. Like he was refusing to wear the heart PJs. He wouldn't do it for the gram? No, no, he wouldn't do it for the gram. I'm like, we have to get this. He's like, ah, not, no deal. Um, but we're going to be like, okay, well, fine. You know, is this a fight? That, is this fight worth it? Like, no. So I told him, you can go, if you go put these PJs back and select another pair of pajamas yourself, we can change. Yeah. I didn't expect this to happen. He went to his, his room, put the PJs back, selected another pair of PJs and, and tried to put them on himself. Yeah. That's what you want to see. I'm happy because he's wearing the PJs. He's happy because he's wearing the PJs of his choice. Great. We want them to do things that are like with our own agenda. This reminds me of my daughter when I brought her, like I couldn't wait to have a daughter to, to put her in her ballet outfit. Like that's all I pictured when I was pregnant and like have that moment of like the cutest little tutu. I will share this picture with you later of her first ballet class. She looked like the saddest puppy in like a shelter. It was, she hated, she hated it. She clawed onto me. She never ever again will do ballet. But I had this moment there where I was like, this is my dream. This is not her dream. And this is where you have to be checking in a lot of times on, and there's a lot of ego work there, right? Where it's like accepting the child that you have in front of you, not the child you wish you had. I want to thank you, first of all, for being so open to talking about something that is so difficult and sensitive. Um, life is wild. I personally never thought I wanted to be a mom. You know, it's, it's crazy. So mostly because of my, my, my relationship with my own mom. And so I say this with a lot of respect and empathy. It was, it was a surprise for me when I found out I was pregnant both times. Like I was deathly afraid of having kids. Like when I got pregnant, I was not ready, like emotionally. Like I didn't, I was actually trying to not get pregnant both times. Yeah. So it was really surprising when I did get pregnant and, you know, people actually on my, on my platform, on Instagram, people ask me a lot about my journey to motherhood. And I always want to address that with a lot of respect again and empathy, um, because I just know how hard it is for so many couples out there. Um, I have friends who've, um, had trouble conceiving, who've had miscarriages and I just, I know I've seen how painful it can be. And I think it's a silent battle that so many women yes. and families are facing with not a lot of people to talk about it, 
um, who will, that they'll yeah. feel understood. I have goosebumps now because I know, I know exactly what you mean. Are you open to talking about your journey? Yes. First, my journey goes all the way back to before I had my daughter, actually. So the first time I got married, I had been on the pill forever, probably like 10 years. And I got off of it and I never got a period like ever for like 10 months. And I'm like, this is not okay, obviously. I would go to doctors. Um, One doctor diagnosed me with PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome. Another one wasn't sure. Like I got so many varying opinions, but the point was I wasn't getting a period and I was not ovulating. So I went on this like alternative medicine kind of venture for like a year and a half where I would do acupuncture three times a week. And and I was on a fertility diet where it was like so rigid and like zero sugar. I couldn't even eat fruit. All this stuff was, was going on and nothing was working. And at the same time, my my sister-in-law at the time and like a bunch of other friends I had were all actually pregnant and having babies. And so I just remember going through like these moments where every get together or every like birthday party, this was the only topic of conversation that the women were having. It was either about pregnancy or about parenthood or about their babies. And and I understand it now as a mom because it kind of consumes your life so much that that I get it. But I I had a moment where I was like, I remember this one um, birthday party where I just had to walk out and I was bawling because I'm like, I'm so triggered right now by everything I'm trying to do. And I just feel so alone. And you know, the way the mind works is when you pay more attention to something, you see it a lot more, right? So I started seeing everyone was pregnant in the street, like everyone was pregnant or everyone had babies or it's not that there are more ba- more babies or more pregnant people. It's that now you're super like hyper aware to everything. And this is sort of what happens with people that struggle to conceive or, or have loss or, you know, many, many challenges in a fertility journey. This is, they, they see something, they want it so badly that they start to see everyone else have it except them. And I think that's the hardest part. And, and knowing that it's just something so out of your control. So I, I went after the alternative, you know, more natural route didn't work for me. I, I took Clomid, didn't work either. I took it for four months, which is supposed to stimulate your ovulation. And I went straight for in vitro. And I was really lucky back then because it worked on the first round in the first cycle. And that's my my beautiful daughter that I had. I'm waiting till to know what age I should tell her, like how much she cost. <laughs> I purchased her. <laughs> I know there are states where insurance will cover some of it, but like my insurance covers zero of this. Like if I didn't have, in all honesty, like my parents' support, I don't know what I would be doing. Like I, I sit there in that waiting room all the time and I see these women and I'm like, this is just such a different, like unexpected path for most of these women. So I've spoken to women where they've had to put their careers completely on hold where they say, I can't afford to go do a master's now or whatever, or they've had to do, you know, they've had to let go of things. So it's just, it's so expensive and it's so time consuming. So now I'm going to fast forward um, till now. And I decided as I turned 35, I'm like, okay, this like biological clock is ticking real loud. And I already know that I had trouble conceiving the first time. Um, I did have a few embryos left 
that are frozen, but they're with my ex-husband. So that wouldn't be the, the most common solution, even right. though like, who knows, right? Um, so I said, okay, I've got to freeze my eggs because I'm in this relationship, but we're not there yet. Um, and I just don't want this pressure of like time and like making decisions when I'm not ready. And so when I went in to freeze my eggs, I got the surprising news that I had really low egg reserves, like my ovarian reserves were so low and that was not something I had before. So like for anyone listening, I, I suggest if you do want to have kids, like just check your levels on a certain basis because you just never know. And I've actually heard this now from a bunch of women where they had no idea they were running really low in the ovarian reserves. So what this means is that I don't have that many eggs right. left. So I said, okay, we're going to freeze them. And, um, I did that in November. I got six eggs, um, but did not fertilize them. And I decided then I got engaged recently and I decided I'm going to do another round. Well, my doctor told me he wanted me to get a little more. Um, and then I just like last week yeah. did my retrieval, my second retrieval and this recovery was harder. So that that's my journey. Um, right now to tell you, so like to be com completely honest right now, I know that some of like a couple, very few of them fertilized, but then here's the thing, like they call you the day after they're like these, this many fertilized yeah. from the ones we got, but now they have to make it one week to actually mature into embryos. And so you, you just don't know. So a lot of what, what fertility and fertility journeys are, is the waiting game. You just don't know. So you have to wait this one week to see if they become embryos. Then you have to genetic test and wait another two weeks to see if they're healthy. Then you have to implant. Then you have to see if it catches. Then you have to see if you don't miscarry. It feels like so many steps compared to uh, somebody that might get pregnant naturally and they they just don't really know all the steps that, that would have that had to happen for them to get there. Yeah. And I must admit that I was completely ignorant. I was so caught up in my own like emotional and very just fears, you know, like I had yeah. legitimate fears, you know, because of what yeah. was modeled to me. Fine. I, it was very hard for me to see outside of my own bubble. And it wasn't until I became a mother and even like until after I started recovering from my own postpartum anxiety both times that I started to really have some perspective on how fortunate I am that I was even yeah. pregnant with such ease, but twice. There's also the part of like, you're being pumped with hormones. Oh yeah. You're walking walk. You can imagine my fiance is not very happy <laughs> living in this home. Um, like, look, that's, a, that's a whole, yes. I mean, being pregnant was, was a mission with my hormones and afterwards right. the hormones regulating again. Like you're not pregnant. You're trying, this is just your effort. Exactly. So this feels like you're pregnant without having like the actual baby in your belly, which is like so crazy. So, so you know what, this, this journey, I decided from my first initial egg freezing, I decided to share this on my platform, which totally goes against FYI, like my family values, they're very private. So when I first shared about my fertility journey, to be honest, my mom like called me up and she's like, I saw what you posted. And like, I don't think you should be sharing those things. That's very private. And like, she believes in like the evil eye and people are going to give me bad energy. So, and she's like, and it's just not the way that they grew up or raised me. Right. And so I had a moment where I was like, maybe I should take this down. And then I had a, a better moment where I was like, no, because I started getting Nikki, these responses. And this time too, where I asked like, 
is there anything you wish people would have known about your fertility journey? And I got so many responses, all sorts of responses, like even from people that got pregnant really easily and actually said like, how do I got pregnant so easily that I didn't know how to handle it with my friends that could not conceive. Right. I also got responses from spouses that said, I don't know how to support my partner in what they're going through. Like, so it was just incredible. The amount of what you're saying, the silence or like the isolation that comes with infertility. I think that's, that's my biggest sort of takeaway is like, it's so isolating. And if there's something I could tell people on here is to really, really walk away from that isolation, to find a community, to find your village. The amount of support that I have gotten, even from strangers that I don't know, women are amazing. Yes. When men, when women come together, like it's a totally different village than any other village. It just feels like a topic that has so much stigma attached to it and, and just giving perspective on women that go through infertility journey, there, there often are associated feelings of guilt and failure. And that's really hard. It's like your body's not working the way that you want it to. I can't give my partner what they need or what they want. There's so much sort of guilt. And so being able to, to kind of process and talk about that with other people, I think is like so, so, so important. Well, you yeah. know, Evelyn, I mean, it takes a lot of courage to do that. And it's it's amazing because, you know, I am in a very similar situation. Like my spouse is very private and, um, you know, I mm-hmm. talk I talk very openly, like especially in the last year about my journey, um, my journey to sobri- through sobriety, yeah. journey um, overcoming my childhood traumas that I faced, um, you know, that's that's big you know and i think like the older generations have a hard time because everything back like back then was like keep your head down and push forward don't let anybody yes like your weak points you know but now i think that there's there's a lot of power in laying our cards out to an extent you know like just showing people that we can be vulnerable there's power in vulnerability and speaking your truth and your reality i mean is just so powerful and not just for your own healing but for to help others heal and feel less alone i think that the the big takeaway here is the sense of community. And I could not agree with you more about the fact that like women are powerful um, when we're by ourselves, but when we come together, we yeah. are force. I always think about this quote by Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, whatever is mentionable is manageable. It's a mantra I have learned to live by. And this is a mantra that I really teach my child. This is why she and I talk about like the hardest things that are there to talk about, right? So like death and like the way we spoke about coronavirus and like just everything that's hard, that feels really hard. If you can talk about it, you can manage it. Wow. So yeah, super powerful. So whatever yeah. is mentionable is manageable. Is manageable. Yeah. So make it mentionable. Talk about it. Now it can be manageable. I love that. I think that's so important. So important. Evelyn, I want to close with your words of advice, what advice do you have for women who are trying to conceive or coping with infertility and loss? There are plenty of women that are either going through something similar or have gone through something similar or know someone who's gotten through something similar. And it's just something not talked about. So finding, you know, finding a space, a safe space where you can go. I think also a really big help for me has been acupuncture and not just for the physical benefits and there's there are there is research tying it to like help infertility but also like with anxiety honestly and find an acupuncturist you love because they see this all the time right so mine is like 
my own version of a therapist. Therapy, emotional support, you have to kind of be able to tackle those really difficult feelings of guilt or failure or hopelessness. Like that's not something you want to live with by yourself without processing. And, and, and I think the biggest takeaway for me was being able to release control. I'm such a controlling person and that, that was my life's lesson. It was, you're, you're not in control of, of everything in your life. And so once I was able to release that, I was able to say, you know, it's not my fault. I'm not in control. Where can people find you? Right now, I'm mostly on Instagram at Hatch and Bloom Co. Um, I do have a website and there's a contact form on there and it's hatchandbloom.co. Hatchandbloom.co. Yeah. And my email is evelyn at hatchandbloom.co. And didn't you write um, a curriculum? Right. Like I wrote these scripts for courses and we pre-recorded them and it really has like if whatever you guys have listened to today, it has everything way more in depth. And I chose the six most relevant topics that happen in early childhood like limit setting, temperaments, big emotions, all the stuff we kind of touched a little bit on today. And we recorded them and I partnered with Zubini. And yeah, now we're selling them on the Zubini website on, it's called Love Parenting. So it's it's ZubiniLoveParenting.com. And uh, you can find those courses there too. But I'm doing webinars and, and workshops all the time and I'm always announcing them on Instagram. So the best thing to do is follow me on Instagram. <laughs> Evelyn, I am so grateful for you. Miami can be such a small town. It's like a big, small town and everybody knows each other. And I'm so grateful that our paths finally crossed. I feel like yeah. it was like written in the stars that we were supposed to meet <laughs> each other and, and get to know each other. And I'm honored that you took the time. I know you're so busy and you are, you know, just to be on my to be on my show and really give people out there hope and help them step into their inner knowing. That's what this is all about. Like. I want to provide a space where women feel like they can sit with us, right? Like mm-hmm. we're not the, like the mean girl days are over. Like you can't sit with us. No, you can sit with us you see yes. at the table for you here. Um, and I think that what you're doing and speaking out about parenting, child therapy and, and your own infertility um, journey is just hugely powerful. So thank you so much for being there. The feeling is so mutual, Nikki. Thank you. And it's been such an honor. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Know. I hope you'll join me again soon. If you loved my podcast, it would mean the world to me if you left a review. You can connect with me personally via Instagram at Nikki Sap Spo. And be sure to check out my website, NikkiSpo.com.